I should like to call your attention this evening to the words found in the 8th chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Romans in verses 33 and 34. Verses 33 and 34 in the 8th chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Romans. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, here we are looking at what I described a few weeks back as the third of the challenges which the Apostle himself puts up to test the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints that he'd been elaborating in verses 28, 29, and 30. I would remind you that uh, this is very typical and characteristic of his method. The apostle is never content merely with making a statement. He always gives us a proof. He was a great pastor as well as a great evangelist. He was anxious to help these Christian people. And his method of doing that is, as I say, to support and to substantiate what he lays down as a proposition. And he does so by means of argumentation. And uh, there are four main challenges which he puts up here and with which he deals and refutes and demolishes and then he ends by making another of his great and resounding pronouncements. Now, that is the analysis of this final subsection of Romans 8. It starts at verse 31, and it goes on to the end of the chapter. That's what he's doing there. He's, in a sense, saying nothing new, but he's proving what he's already been saying to us. And so, we have here a series of what one can describe as great hammer strokes coming down and demolishing anything conceivable that can be put up as an objection to what he has already been laying down for us. Now, we've considered the first two already. The first is in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? There's the general question. But here's the first challenge. If God be for us, who can be against us? That was number one. Who can be against us in view of the fact that God is for us? The second one is in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How is it possible that... Uh, the love of God toward us, his people, should ever lessen or wane in any respect. It's impossible. And it's shown to be impossible by what God has already done for us. He has done this greatest of all things for us, and because of that, it is certain that he will not refuse to do anything for us that is less than that. Now, there, then, was the way in which the apostle deals with the second challenge in verse 32. And now we come on to the next. 
which uh, I describe as the third challenge. Now, you notice that there are two questions here. One of them is in verse 33 and one in verse 34. Nevertheless, I put the two together and describe them as one challenge because, in essence, the two really deal with one big issue. What's that? Well, it is this issue of the possibility of our ever finding ourselves ultimately in a state of condemnation or of rejection by God. That's what he's concerned about. You see, the doctrine is the final perseverance of the saints. That all who are justified are already glorified and will inevitably arrive at that ultimate, complete and perfect salvation. So he takes up this question. Is it the case that there is no possibility whatsoever of nothing ever arising that can again bring us into condemnation and leave us in a position that we are finally outside the love of God and outside his great salvation. That's the one issue which he puts here. But he puts it, of course, in terms of the two questions. One is in terms of anybody bringing a charge against us. And the other is the possibility of someone or somehow condemning us or proving that we are in a state of condemnation. Very well. I take the two together for that reason. But I'm very anxious at the same time to show you that there are these two distinct subsidiary forms to the one issue. Now, before we come to go into details, there is just one mechanical point or question with which we've got to deal. And it is with regard to the relationship of these particular terms that the Apostle uses to one another. Now, many of the commentators take up this point, and that is why I'm dealing with it, lest there may be some confusion in somebody's mind with regard to this. The main point at issue is this is the relationship between the end of verse 33 and the beginning of verse 34. You see, it is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? Now, in the authorized version, indeed in all the versions where you've got to the statement divided up into verses, you will see that um, it is God that justifies is put in verse 33 as an answer to the question at the beginning of verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And that, who is he that condemneth at the beginning of verse 34, is the question that is followed by the answer, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. But, there are commentators who say that that is wrong. And they put together the end of verse 33 and the beginning of verse 34. Professor John Murray of Philadelphia, in his recently published commentary, I say recently, I mean about a year ago, he is one of those who takes this view. And there are others with him. They say that, uh, who is he that condemneth? Is an answer to the statement, it is God that justifies. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? in the light of the fact that it is God that justifies 
who is there that can condemn? And his reason, and the reason of those whom he follows, uh, for saying that is this. They say that to take it otherwise means that the Lord Jesus Christ is regarded as the one who justifies. And on those grounds, they rearrange this. And therefore they say that the statement, it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, is the answer beforehand to the question at the beginning of verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. That is the position which they take up. Well, I don't want to waste any time over this, because uh, everybody's agreed, whichever view you hold, that it, in the end, of course, uh, teaches the same great truth. Nevertheless, I think that it is just worthwhile glancing at it for a moment. And I am anxious to say that I am in entire agreement in this matter with the authorized version and also Martin Luther and John Calvin, as against Professor John Murray and those whom he quotes on his side. And I want to give you some reasons for that. It seems to me that to do what is suggested completely upsets the symmetry of the Apostle's statements. Now, the, the symmetry is what I, what I mean by the symmetry is this. Listen to it, starting again in verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? There's a complete statement in itself. Then the second one, verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give, also freely give us all things? Again, the statement complete in itself. I say that he goes on to do exactly the same in verse 33. And that is why the men who divided all this up into verses, it seems to me, were so entirely right. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's the question. The answer is, it is God that justifies. Then the next question, who is he that condemneth? The answer, in the same verse, it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Complete statement again. Then the next question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Then the quotation, then the answer, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so, you see, you've got question and answer. And you've got these groupings. Whereas if you suddenly break into all that and connect the end of verse 33 with the beginning of 34, you've entirely upset the symmetry. And you make him put the answer before the question sometimes, and so on. So for those reasons, I would entirely reject, for that one reason, I would entirely reject this suggestion and defend what we've got here in our verse divisions, and uh, as I say, what was taught by Luther and by Calvin. But I've got a further reply. The reason I say for uh, making this rearrangement is that they say that the other tends to make the Lord Jesus Christ the justifier. But that doesn't seem to me to be the case at all. In verse 34, the apostle is concerned not so much about justification so much as judgment. 
God is the justifier, always, and that's the answer to anybody bringing a charge against us. But when you talk about condemnation, you are, in a sense, of course, still in the realm of justification, but the main idea is that of judgment. And here I want to show that it is entirely appropriate to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as a judge. Now then, let me give you my evidence for saying this. Take the teaching of our Lord himself in John chapter 5, John's Gospel chapter 5, and in verse 27. Here is our Lord speaking, and this is what he says in verse 26. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Men. The Father has handed over this question of judgment to the Son. The Father is ultimately the judge, but he has committed this question of judgment now to the Son. There's one statement of it. Then, of course, we've got the Apostle Paul himself, with whose words we are dealing, saying really the same thing in his sermon at Athens, as recorded in Acts 17, in verse 31 in particular. Because he hath appointed a day, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Surely the same statement. And then we've got the familiar statement in 2 Corinthians 5.14. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Now there is another, I should have said verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, we persuade men, and so on. There is another statement of the same thing. And finally, it seems to me to be taught very clearly in the book of Revelation. You've got it in chapter 1 and verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. But still more specific, in the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation, in verses 15 to 17, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us, from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The Lord Jesus Christ has had judgment committed to him. He is to exercise the judgment on the part of his Father. So it seems to me that the Apostle here very rightly 
not only raises the question of justification in terms of God the Father, he raises the possibility of condemnation in terms of God the Son, to whom judgment has been committed. And if necessary, I would venture even a third argument, which I would put like this, that there may be a suggestion here along these lines, that someone might say that the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the incarnation, because he took unto him human nature, because he was made flesh, because he took upon him the form of a man, and lived the life of a man here in this world, is a source of condemnation to us. That people might say, well, there is a man, but he never sinned. He obeyed God perfectly. Why haven't you done so? So that the life, the perfection of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ might in that way become a source of condemnation to us. Well, for those reasons, without giving any further reasons, I would defend the verse division that we have in our Bibles and express my entire agreement with the view of Luther and Calvin as over and against others who want to suggest the other. Now, as I've said, there is no ultimate difference in doctrine between the two parties, but as they do raise this question and would rearrange things, it seemed to me that it was just worthy of that amount of attention at any rate in passing. Very well, having dealt with that, let's go on and look now at the actual statements confronting us. So we take this evening verse 33, which I am arguing, as you see, is a complete statement in and of itself of this particular matter. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The answer is, it is God that justifies. Now then, what does this mean? Well, let's look at the terms. Notice, first of all, the way in which we are described as Christians. We are God's elect. Now, that's the way that you and I as Christians should always think of ourselves. We are God's elect. What does he mean by that? Well, of course, it's a part of his whole argument. The term God's elect is a very good summary of uh, all he said in verses 28, 29, and 30, and especially 29 and 30. At the end of verse 28, you've got to them who are the called according to his purpose. Then you remember the amplification of it. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called, and whom he called them, he also justified, and whom he justified them, he also glorified. Now, all that can be summed up by saying, God's elect. What's it mean? Well, it's really another way of saying whom he foreknew. Because we saw that that meant whom he had chosen beforehand. I pointed out at the time in dealing with this word for new, that as it's used in the Old Testament, it carries that meaning with it of choice beforehand, setting his affection in particular upon certain people. That's what foreknowledge means. It means choice. It means not knowing about, not omniscience. It means taking a particular interest in it, setting your affection upon it. It means a choice beforehand. 
Well, that's election. That's choosing. Choosing before heaven. So Christians are those whom God has chosen before heaven. We are God's elect. The apostle's object in doing this, we shall see in a moment. It's a part of the whole great argument for assurance of salvation and for an absolute certainty of the final perseverance of the saints. I simply ask a question at this point. Do you habitually, my friend, think of yourself as one of God's elect? One of God's chosen people? Or if you prefer it in the language of the Apostle Peter, one of God's peculiar people. One of those whom God has chosen to be a peculiar possession for himself. That's what a Christian is. I'm certain that most of our troubles arise from the fact that we don't think of ourselves in this way. We've been taught so much to think of the Christian as a man who's decided for Christ. My dear friend, put the emphasis the other way around. He's a man who's been elected, chosen of God, and precious to God for that reason. His peculiar possession, his purchased possession, his own people whom he set apart for himself. That's what it means. And as I say, if we only habitually think of ourselves in these terms and the dignity and everything else that belongs to this, it will revolutionize the whole of our Christian life and all our thinking. So he puts it like that, you see. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What unworthy, unworthy views we have of the Christian. Good men trying to live a good life taking his decision. All the emphasis is here on men. That's not the apostle's way. A Christian is one of God's elect. Special people. Specially set apart and reserved by God for himself. Very well, we've got to notice that because that's the way in which the apostle describes us. Then he puts up his challenge. Who shall lay anything to the charge of such a person? Now, this is a very interesting way in which the Apostle puts it. He puts up before us the picture of a law court. It's a forensic picture. It's the picture of a case being tried in a court of law. And what he says is this. Who shall come forward or can come forward as an accuser of these people? That's what he's saying. The court is in session and a challenge is sent out. Who can come forward and really bring a charge that he can substantiate against these people? Who can act as accuser against these people? Now, uh, this word is quite an interesting one. It's only used four times altogether in the whole of the New Testament. And the other three examples are all in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's just interesting to look at this. The first is in Acts 19, verse 40. You, you remember there was an uproar in the assembly at Ephesus as the result of the work of Paul and the town clerk comes on at the end and this is what he says. He says, we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar. That's it, to be called in question. We are in danger, he says, of being accused because of this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. There's the first. 
The second is in Acts 23, in verse 29. This is a part of this letter, which is written by Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. He's writing about Paul. And he says, whom I perceive to be accused of questions of their law. You see, it's always legal, isn't it? Legal fight. The town clerk was making, he says, a charge can be brought against us for this. An action can be brought against us. Now here again, Lysias in writing his letter about the case of Paul to Felix makes exactly the same point. And you've got it the third time in Acts, in Acts 26 too. Paul uh, appearing before Agrippa and Festus says, I think myself happy King Agrippa because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. They were bringing this charge against him. And it is a legal charge. I'll show you in a moment the significance of that. Now here is the challenge therefore. Who can come forward and accuse any one of these people? The Bible tells us that Satan is the chief accuser. He is the director, if you like, of this prosecution. The chief prosecutor. He is the accuser of the brethren. But he does it in many different ways. He does it sometimes by playing upon our consciences. He does it sometimes through other people. They come along and say, do you call yourself a Christian? Fine Christian you are. Look what you've done. Look what you are. They're acting as subsidiaries. Devils of the devil, for me to use a legal term. But the devil is the chief prosecutor, chief accuser of the brethren. He employs all these various agents and subsidiaries. Well, now then, there is the challenge. What is the answer? The apostle has already given us part of the answer in calling us God's elect. And in a sense, that's enough in and of itself. If you are one of God's chosen people, well, you are. And because God is God, nobody can ever take you from there. See, that's why he used the term God's elect. He doesn't say who can, who shall bring any charge against those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, no. That isn't so strong, it's not enough. That leaves it dependent upon my belief. No. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God's elect answers it. But the apostle doesn't stop at that. He says, now this is a legal matter. So we've got to deal with it in a legal way. We've got to deal with it in a legal sense. And so he proceeds to do so. And once more we shall find that he completely demolishes this supposed accusation as he's already done in verses 31 and 32. His method is to ridicule the thing out of court. The apostle employs that argument very frequently. He makes a thing look quite ridiculous, impossible. He laughs it out of court. Notice in verse 31, If God be for us, who can be against us? The thing is foolish, it's ridiculous, it's quite impossible. Well, we've got the same thing here. Now, this is how he does it. It is God the justified. Now, here is an interesting statement. The actual words used by Paul mean this. 
God the one justified. The rest has been added in order to make it clear to us that the actual words written by Paul come to this. God the one justified. So that you see this can be taken in two ways. And again the learned commentators are divided about this. Some say it's a question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God the one justifying? Question mark. Impossible. Or you can take it as it's here in the authorized translation as a statement. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Not a question now, but a statement. Well, of course, once more, it comes to exactly the same thing. But I would choose again the question because it seems to me to be much stronger. It brings in this element of ridicule. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What? God, the one justifying us? The ridicule, the demolishing, the hammer stroke comes out, I think, a little more if you put it in the form of a question rather than the form of a statement. But whichever way you put it, the truth conveyed is, of course, exactly the same. Very well. What is the argument? Well, let me work it out for you. Here is his argument. It's compressed into those few words. God the one justified. Here's the content. First, man's relationship to God is always a legal one. God in his dealings with men has always done it in terms of a covenant. And a covenant is a legal document. Even when he placed men in perfection in the garden, there was a covenant, a covenant of works. He mustn't eat of this particular fruit. And he did so and so. There's a covenant. God's relationship with men is always a legal one. We've got to start with that. The whole argument is essentially a legal one. God has chosen to deal with men and to have relationships with men in that particular way. Well, there's statement number one. Secondly, God himself has made and constructed and fashioned the law which governs this his relationship with men. The law is not made by men, the law is made by God. It is he who has thought of it, it is he who has promulgated it, it was he who gave it originally to the first men, it was he who renewed it with Noah, it was he who renewed it with Abram, it was he who made it still more plain to Moses and through Moses. It's God's law, not men's. And God has worked out and determined every single detail of this law. Very well. The next step is, the third step is, that God is not only the administrator of the law, God is the judge. He is described as the judge everywhere in the Bible. Shall not the judge of the whole earth do right? God is the judge eternal. He's revealed himself as that. So that he is the one who judges men in terms of the law which he himself has promulgated and has given. 
Now these are all statements which are implicit in these few words we're looking at. So I go on to the fourth statement which is this. Any charge that can ever be brought against men must always be in terms of this law, nothing else. It must always be a legal charge. If a charge is to be proffered against any one of us, it must always be in terms of this law, either that I have broken the law or that I have failed to keep the law. Now, let me explain what I mean. There is no standing for anybody who may come along and say that he or she doesn't like me. That doesn't count in law at all. You see, it's no use you going to the law, a law court in England and saying, I don't like such a person, therefore I ask that that person be punished. You will be told if you do that sort of thing, well, whether you like or dislike doesn't matter here. Can you prove to me that this person has broken a law or has failed to keep a law? What we think of one another doesn't matter. If you go to a court of law, well, then the whole thing's got to be done in terms of law and nothing else. Likes and dislikes and motives, doesn't matter, they don't count. The whole thing has got to be established in terms of law. So that if anybody's going to accuse us, it has got to be always in terms of this law which God himself has given to determine the whole state and condition of men and his relationship to him. So that any accuser, the devil or anybody else, who comes along and is anxious to accuse us, has got to be able to establish it in terms of what the law says. You see, the, the analogy of what happens in the law of any country is absolutely perfect at this point. You can get up and make statements about another person, doesn't matter, if you can't prove it that it's within the terms of the law, or that it establishes some contravention of the law, well, it's no good. Sometimes this appears to us to be utterly ridiculous, doesn't it? I read two cases in this morning's paper that illustrates what I'm trying to say absolutely perfectly. Did you read about that man of whom it was said that he was absolutely guiltless in the matter that he'd done everything he could to avoid knocking down a woman on, on a Belisha crossing? It wasn't his fault at all. It was agreed that it was the woman's fault. She foolishly ran across and yet that man was punished. Why? Well, he was guilty of a contravention of the law on that particular point. So that it seems, though that it seems utterly unjust to us, legally speaking, the man was in transgression as the law now stands. And there was another similar case, which I needn't bother to mention. In other words, you see, what matters is not what you and I think. Not what you and I may even regard as right and just. What does the law say? It's got to be proved one way or the other. That's why we have the saying that the law is an ass. It often appears to us to be utterly contrary to common sense. Well, all right, if you think that, try and change your law. But while there is the law, you've got to abide by it and you'll be punished according to it. Now, all that is equally true in the realm of things spiritual. Very well. We go on then to our fifth statement, which is this one. Having said all that to us, the Apostle says, Now then, the position is that it is God himself who justifies us. But what does that mean? Now, this is the whole crux of the matter. 
What does it mean to say that it is God himself who justifies us? I'm sorry to put it negatively. But it does not only mean what this new translation says. It puts it like this. It is God who pronounces acquittal, says the New English Bible. It is God who pronounces the acquittal. Why do I reject that? I reject it for this reason. That while what it says is perfectly true, it doesn't say enough. Indeed, it leaves out what is the most glorious aspect of justification. It would identify justification with acquittal, with a pronouncement of not guilty. But that isn't enough. We need more than that. Thank God that he does pronounce an acquittal. We were all damned if he didn't do that. The first thing we need to know is that we are acquitted. But God goes further than that. To justify means more than to pardon. To justify means more than to forgive. It includes pardon and forgiveness, but it goes well beyond it. What does it mean? Well, how often... Did we have to define this in doing the first four chapters of this great epistle? It is this. It is God making a declaration, a judicial declaration, that he has not only forgiven us, but that he now regards us as just and as righteous and as holy and as if we had never sinned at all. Now then, how does God do this? This is the important point. God does this in a legal manner. That's why I read to you that portion out of the third chapter at the beginning, where the apostle takes such trouble to put this quite plainly. God always acts in terms of law. It's his own law. He must be just. If God can't forgive me without affecting his own justice, well, then there is no forgiveness. God, we read there in verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Well, how can God regard me as a Christian as one who is just and righteous and holy? He's already given us the great answer. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God has done it in a very legal manner in a very just manner. What has he done? Well, he's taken my sins. He's put them upon his son. And as he said he'd punish sin, he has punished sin. But he's punished it in his son. And because he has punished him, he doesn't punish me. I'm acquitted. Ah, yes, but that's negative. Before I can stand in the presence of God, I must have something about me that is like God. There must be a correspondence. And God is righteous and holy. So what God does is this. He not only puts my sin, imputes my sin to his son. He takes his righteousness and imputes it to me. And having put the righteousness of Christ upon me, he regards me as just. He pronounces that I'm just. We sang the hymn, Jesus Thy robe of righteousness, my beauty is, my glorious dress. Mist flaming worlds in this array, with joy shall I lift up my head. Nobody can lay any charge against me, because I'm arrayed in this. Positive, you see. Not merely negative, it's positive. 
The apostle says the same thing exactly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is justification. It is a judicial act on the part of God in which he pronounces that because of what he has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, that he regards us now as righteous. You see, he puts us into Christ. We are covered and clothed by the righteousness of Christ. Not only pardoned and forgiven, I am positively righteous. God regards me as just and pronounces me to be just. The demands of his own law have been satisfied in this other, and therefore I am free. Now then, that is the meaning of justification. It isn't merely pronouncing an acquittal. It goes well beyond it. It is pronouncing a positive righteousness, a positive justice, rightness, a positive holiness in Christ. And the Apostle's teaching has been in the early chapters that God has made this great proclamation in the resurrection. Romans 4.25, who was delivered for our offenses, was raised again for our justification. And furthermore, he says this, that God makes this pronouncement about us once and forever. He doesn't make it many times, he makes it once. A man is either justified or else he isn't. You can't be justified many times. God doesn't have to do things many times. God does this once and forever. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and already because of this rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Justification is once and forever. It is God's statement. He knows the end from the beginning and once he pronounces the man just, he is forever just and righteous in the sight of God. It isn't a thing that has to go on being repeated. It's once and forever. Justification is characterized by that. Very well. What then is the real significance of what the apostle tells us here? He says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. What? The one who himself has justified us? Here's the significance. In being justified, we are not only being cleared against one charge, See, the devil may come on and make a particular charge. Look, that man, he fell into that sin. Is that man a Christian? You're not only cleared against one charge in justification. You are cleared against every charge, all charges that can ever be thought of. Justification means that you're cleansed and delivered and just in the sight of God, past, present, and future. It's a once and for all act. So all conceivable charges are already answered in God's declaratory statement about his having justified us. That's what he's saying. But wait a minute. He's saying still more. You know what happens in the law courts, don't you? 
There are two barristers arguing a case. And the one man has put up his defense and it seems to be very masterful. And you feel the case is ended. Prosecution has collapsed. But suddenly the counsel for prosecution gets up again and opens the book. He says, I have an authority here. And he says, my learned friend has forgotten a point. There's a detail in this law, subsection so-and-so, and then there are endless ramifications of subsections. Here it is. It's most unfortunate, he says, for counsel for defense and for the poor prisoner. But here it is in the law, a little clause that hasn't been referred to for centuries by any judge or anybody else, but it's here. He's found it, you see, with his great erudition and his training and his knowledge of law. He's found it. And this forgotten subsection of a subsection of a subsection convicts the unfortunate prisoner of being guilty. And so judgment and sentence have to be passed. What the apostle is saying is this. That can never happen in this court. Because God is the judge and God is the lawgiver. And he knows everything about every possible subsection. There is never the danger that Satan, with all his cleverness and wildness, will be able to get up one day and produce a clause that brings me into condemnation. God knows it all, infinitely better than even Satan does. It is an utter impossibility. God knows all about it, in its every detail and comma and jot and tittle. So nothing and no one can ever be able to bring this charge against God's elect. No authority can ever be quoted which is going to shake our position. Why? Well, ultimately for this. This further thought is here. Because we are justified, we have finished with the law and all its demands. Because they've been satisfied in our case, in what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we can go forward and say this, that as God's elect, we are dead to the law. As far as we are concerned in this matter of condemnation, the law is finished. Now that was chapter 7. Know we not, brethren, how that the law of dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband, you remember the argument about the woman. Back he comes to apply it in verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become, have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit to God. But here's the material statement. You are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Now then, you see how it works. The whole of man's relationship to God, as I said at the beginning, is in legal terms. It's in terms of law. No charge can ever be brought against me except in terms of law. But now, as far as I'm concerned, there is no law. I'm out of that realm. I'm no longer related to God in terms of law. Because of what God has done in Christ, I'm in this relationship of grace. I'm dead to the law. So that the devil can get up and quote any law he may like, the answer to him is, out of court. No case. This man's no longer under law. 
Let him do all his research work. Let him try to find some little clause which will convict me. The whole of the law is finished. I'm dead to the law. We are no longer under law, as Romans 6.14 puts it, but we are under grace. Therefore, as it is God who has justified us, and in this way in which he satisfied his own law fully, and therefore we are dead as far as it is concerned, it is completely impossible that anyone anywhere can ever bring any charge against us. That's what he's saying. Now then, let me draw some conclusions before we finish. Do you now not see the importance of understanding the doctrine of justification by faith only? There is no type of Christian that I regard as so utterly foolish and benighted as the type of Christian who says, I'm not interested in doctrine. I've got an experience. Fool that you are. The devil will soon shake you and your experience. It's only as you understand the doctrine of justification by faith only that you'll have security, that you'll have safety, that you'll have joy. Doctrine is absolutely essential. How do you realize the meaning of justification, my friend? You're not merely pardoned and forgiven. You're declared by God to be just in his sight. This is a matter of status. This is a matter of standing. You don't go back and forth from being justified to not being justified and then having to go through. No, no, God's done it once and forever and the law's out as far as you are concerned. You're dead to it. Status. Standing. Don't you see then in the light of that that this is the complete answer to any charge that can ever be brought against us? Don't you see also that it's the only answer you rely on anything else, the devil will soon shake you. There's only one answer to give him. This is the answer. God himself has justified me. So all you say is a lie. Now then, that's how you and I have got to meet the devil and his accusations. If you begin to listen to the devil and say, well, after all, he's right, I did sin yesterday, and I'm not as good as I ought. The moment you begin to think like that, you're done for you brought works in. You say, no, no. I know I'm unworthy. I know I'm sinful. You don't know how bad I am. And I fail. But God has justified me in Christ. I don't rely upon myself. I never have done. I'm relying utterly, only, absolutely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done on my behalf. Stand on justification by faith only. It's the only ground on which you can stand. And we must learn to do this. This is the final answer to the devil. It is God that justifies. Don't you see now how the Protestant Reformation ever came into being? Don't you understand now the thrill that Martin Luther had when he discovered this? Don't you see now what he meant when he said that this doctrine of justification by faith only is the test of a standing or a falling church? It is. It's the key to everything. That's been the great argument of the Apostle. And don't you see, conversely, the terrible error of the Roman Catholic Church, which has been wrong and is still wrong on this question of justification by faith only, and says that you're only justified because you're sanctified. 
Don't you see the error of that church also in opposing the doctrine of assurance? And the error of all others who oppose the doctrine of assurance? No, no. We are meant to enjoy complete assurance and absolute certainty about our ultimate final destiny. We are meant to be able to say without any doubt or hesitation, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, which is what I am. And the answer is no one, nothing. Why? Well, because it is God himself, the judge of the lawgiver, who has found a way to satisfy his own law and his own holy nature and his own justice and righteousness in his only begotten Son and who has himself declared that because I believe in Jesus I am just and justified in his sight. Do you thus answer the devil and every other accuser? It's the only answer. Be certain about the meaning of justification and then use it, imply it. And you will be able to answer every enemy in heaven or earth or hell. You'll be able to defy them all as Count Zinzendorf did in that great hymn of his which we sang just now, as it is translated by John Wesley. In that great day, who can bring aught against me? Nothing, nobody. Fully absolved in thee I am from sin and death, from guilt and shame. Once you are declared justified, it's an absolute statement. And there is no conceivable going back from it. Once in Christ, always in Christ. The final perseverance of the saints. O Lord our God, we come again to thank thee for thy wonderful grace. For this glorious way of redemption and salvation in Christ Jesus. Wilt thou permit us, O Lord, to say that we admire its perfection and the way that thou hast done it. Every mouth stopped. This perfect legal way of redemption, which far from making void the law, establishes the law, glorifies the law and yet makes us dead to the law and brings us under thy wonderful grace. Lord, we offer our prayers and our humble thanksgiving. Enable us, we pray thee, so to realize these things that we shall ever be able to withstand all the accusations of our adversary, the accuser of the brethren and ever rejoice in our blood-bought, secure salvation. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, 
Abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until that great day comes, and we shall see him as he is, and be like him in the glory everlasting. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.